Lee, have you got it? Yeah, you got it. That's okay. I just need to put my PowerPoints on. the Lord. We are going to continue this morning with the series that we've been doing entitled, Who's to Blame? Turn to the person next to you say, Who's to Blame? Who's to Blame? Amen. And you'll remember in the first week, we talked about how we often will blame our family. It's mom's fault that I'm like this. It's dad's fault that I'm like this. And the parents will say, It's my parents' fault that I'm like this. And The grandparents will say, well, you don't know what it was like. It was my parents' fault that I'm raised like this. Amen. And so we continually blame others. It's my brother's fault. It's my sister's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's my dad's fault. My auntie's fault. My uncle's fault. Instead of taking responsibility and saying, no, no, I'm not going to blast the blame. Some things might have happened that are not right, not fair, and should never have happened. But I'm going to take responsibility for my part of it. And I'm going to make a decision not to just blame. Because when you blame, you lose the power to change. Amen? You lose the power to change. That was the first week. The second week, we spoke about blaming the church. It's the pastor's fault. Man, if you had the pastor that I had when I was growing up, man, he was so nasty. He was controlling It's the church's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the church leadership fault. It's the fact that they didn't have a good Sunday school program for my kids. It's the fact they didn't have creche. It's the fact that they didn't have much of a youth program. It's the church's fault that all this has happened to me. Hello? Again, all we are doing is just shifting the blame onto somebody else. And in doing so, we lose all power to make a difference. Amen? In our lives. And then last week, we spoke about blaming the enemy. It's the devil's fault that this is happening to me. It's the enemy's fault. It's, it's the people who are against me. Amen. And we spoke about the danger of over-spiritualizing things. Right? The devil uses things in our lives to bring division to families and to bring division to church. But he doesn't cause them. They're caused by us. Hello? They are. And we over-spiritualize. Oh, this is not my fault. This is the devil that made me do it. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it. He's just using the fact that you did it. Amen. But you can control that by saying, "Ah, I'm going to take responsibility for that. I'm going to make changes in my life. I'm going to be different. And the devil can't can't get in there anymore. Right? Amen. It's true. Yeah, there's people out there who blame the devil for everything. The devil caused my car not to start. That's why I couldn't come to church. The devil didn't cause your car to break down. You haven't had a service for two years. What was going to happen? The devil broke my car down. No, he didn't. You left your lights on. That's why your battery's flat. Hello? Right? And there is a danger that we can over-spiritualize things sometimes, right, without taking responsibility. But in that danger of over-spiritualizing things, we shift the blame onto the enemy. Right? The pattern for all of this, of course, was in the Garden of Eden. Right? Adam blamed Eve. Adam blamed God. Eve blamed the serpent. Right? Everyone was passing the buck. It's not my fault. It's anyone else's fault but mine. I refuse to take responsibility. And whenever we do that, we lose the ability to change. We lose the ability for God to be able to work on our lives because we have no power. We've given it away to somebody else. Amen? Amen. And so we're going to continue this morning. And if you've got your Bibles, once you grab them, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to finish up with our last lesson today. Why do we take responsibility? We take responsibility because Jesus took our blame 
Turn to the person next to you and say, Jesus took my blame. Jesus took my blame. Isaiah chapter 53. Say amen when you're there. And if someone could grab me a cup of water or something, that would be great. Is that mine over there, is it? Okay, I'll get that. Just because my voice is not exactly 100% today. Isaiah 53. And I want to start reading from verse 2. Say amen when you're there. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, it says, Who has believed? That's verse 1. Who has believed our report? Might as well read verse 1. We're there. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, verse 6, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is bought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep, for, for her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And our key, our key verse for today is verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Has anyone here ever heard of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant? And the Chernobyl nuclear disaster that happened, there was an explosion in the Ukraine. It happened in 1986 on the morning of April the 22nd, 26th rather, sorry. And uh, the people who went to work that day in that nuclear power plant had no idea that they were about to live through what was the worst nuclear disaster the world has ever seen. They began to do a series of tests in Unit 4, but something went wrong. Two explosions shook the reactor and immediately two engineers were killed. As bad as that was, however, it was only the beginning of a much larger problem. A fire broke out in the light water graphic moderator reactor that sent clouds of radioactive smoke into the sky. Due to the exposure to high levels of radiation, 49 workers died over the next few weeks. However, things could have been much, much worse at Chernobyl. A few weeks after the initial explosion had happened, the plant's chiefs became concerned that a second explosion could have happened much, much worse than the initial one that had happened. And if it was to happen, the projections showed that millions and millions of people 
across all of Western Europe would be exposed to this radioactive cloud and fallout that would spread over all of Europe. But in order to keep this from happening, somebody needed to drain a pool of water that was underneath the reactor. And this story is one of self-sacrifice because that water was highly radioactive. Anybody who dove into that water to get down underneath the reactor to open up the valves that would let the water out of the pool and relieve the pressure and stop the explosion from happening, they were going to get exposed to lethal amounts of radiation. It really was literally a suicide mission. The Soviet authorities, because it was under the Soviet Union at the time, they asked for volunteers and a couple of men said, well, we'll go and do it. And, and they said to them, are you sure you want to do this? You understand you can say no. You can decline this because if you do it, there is a very, very good chance you're going to die. You're not going to make this. As a matter of fact, if you do it, we're going to give you medals and we're going to look after your families after you're gone. It was a suicide mission. They didn't expect these men to, to do it, but they did it. They dove down and after a great deal of time in the water, they found the valves and sacrificed to be able to save all those people across Western Europe. They put their safety into the back of their minds and laid their lives down. Thankfully, history says they didn't end up dying. They got sick, but they managed to not die. But they were expecting to die. They didn't think they were going to live. And you know, such stories of sacrifice are very uncommon. You don't hear of them very often. And they are even more uncommon when you think that the hero is despised by the ones that are being rescued. You know, those, those engineers, two engineers and the soldier who volunteered for the task, they were heroes. Everybody celebrated them. But even with that celebration, it's uncommon that people would lay down their lives like that. And it is even more uncommon when the very person who is laying down his life is rejected by the people for whom he is sacrificing himself. An innocent man was sentenced to death. With this man having done no wrong, one might even wonder why in the world this mockery of a court had reached such a verdict. After all, the very one who had betrayed him returned the bounty and declared that he was innocent in Matthew 27 verse 4. The wife of the governor who presided over this innocent man's trial maintained that he was a righteous man. She begged her husband to leave this man alone. The Roman governor himself, he pronounced, I find no fault in this man. I can't see anything wrong that he is worthy of death. Even the Jewish ruler at the time, the same guy, this is the guy who had given the order to cut off John the Baptist, said, this guy said, there's nothing wrong here. He hasn't done any crime worthy of death. You see, the death of this innocent man was a great injustice, but it was justice. Because this man drunk from the cup. This man drunk from the cup. And you might ask, how did an innocent man drinking from a cup cause his death to become some sort of justice? You know, it is interesting to observe that it was not even this man's desire to drink from the cup. He prayed that it would be taken from him. It was vile. It was repulsive. He didn't want to be a part of it, even though he knew that it was to be the master plan that God had. 
And though he understood the severity of drinking from the cup, he willingly drank from it. Stop and think for a moment what it would have been like in your life if you had to take on the sins of the entire world. You look at your life and you see the mistakes that you've made. You see the shame that sometimes you've carried around before you came to the cross. You look at the mistakes you have made even after you've come to the cross and you, you fret about them and you ask God for forgiveness and you feel the weight of that burden. Imagine if the weight of that burden was for the entirety of the world and it rested on your shoulders. The Bible connects the imagery of the cup with the anger of God. Jeremiah 25 and verse 15 refers to the cup of His fury. And Isaiah 51 verse 17 says the same thing, the cup of His fury. This innocent man, in drinking of the cup, took upon himself God's fury, God's rage at every sin that had ever been and would ever be committed. Every crime, every act of adultery, every murder, every lie, every form of gossip and slander. This innocent man, the only man born innocent that this world has ever known, aligned himself with the purpose of the Father and said, Your will be done. He had prayed and he drunk the cup. 700 years or so before this innocent man was born, Isaiah foresaw his suffering. But that's not all. Isaiah also foresaw why this innocent man would suffer. Isaiah pointed out the person who was responsible for the death of this innocent man. And according to Isaiah, that person is me. And that person is you. We are the guilty party. We are to blame. We are the rebels. As Isaiah put it in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's all encompassing. You know, going our own way is no small matter. Our way speaks of failure. It speaks of our sin. It speaks of our iniquities. And going our way speaks of this erroneous thought that somehow, through our righteousness, through us being good enough, we can overcome the bad in us. Going our own way is thinking that our righteousness will save us. But the Bible is clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Therefore, going our own way is a rejection of the right way and a rejection of the innocent man. You know, Isaiah noted our rejection of the innocent man and he stated that this innocent man was despised and rejected of men and we esteemed him not. Yet despite the rejection, this innocent man took our place. I want you in Isaiah 53 to notice what our involvement in this is. In verse 4 it says, He bore our griefs. 
it says he carried our sorrows. In verse 5, it says he was pierced through for our transgressions. It says that he was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised for our well-being. He was scourged for our healing. He took on, in verse 6, the iniquity of us all. Verse 8 says that he was stricken for our transgressions. Verse 11 says he will bear our iniquities. And verse 12 says that he bore the sins of many. We were to blame. Those were our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. And he took them all. And we, we despised him. That's difficult for us to accept. We like to think someone else despised him. Somebody else rejected him. But if you don't get anything else from everything I've taught over the past four weeks, get this. If we are to lay claim to the fact that he bore our sorrows, that he bore our griefs, that he was wounded for our transgressions, we have to accept the responsibility that we esteemed him not. Perhaps we find the thought that we are responsible to be highly inaccurate. After all, you and I, we are alive nearly 2,000 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yet it is clear that we are responsible because we are both the rejectors and the recipients. We have all gone our own way. Yet Jesus took our blame. Why the rejection? Why do we find him to be repulsive? I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus represented everything that we are not. He was lowly. We are not. He embraced humility. We reject it. He became a servant, but we reject servanthood. We want prominence. We want to be important. But Jesus taught the opposite. And He lived it as well. His whole demeanor, His philosophies, His mindset, His values, what He thought was important and unimportant, everything about Him was contrary to us. And so to protect ourselves and to protect our own self-image, we despised Him. Yet despite all of that, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ ransomed us and took our place. You see, Jesus did not take our rejection personally. He did not reject us because we rejected Him. Instead, He loved us and gave Himself for us. He could have laid greater blame on us. But instead, He took our blame. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. No, His taking our blame was all within the plan of God. God knew 
that as sinners, we had no hope. We could do nothing. We were the guilty ones. But God, thank you Jesus, was not willing to leave us in our guilt. We were condemned. We were to be blamed, but God, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 3.16, was manifest in the flesh. God, in Jesus Christ, became our mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who acts as a a middle person, a go-between person to work between two opposing sides to try and bring about a settlement. A mediator's job is to resolve disputes between two parties. And can I tell you this morning that God has a dispute with humanity because of humanity's sin. Sin. According to 1 John 3 verse 4 is a transgression against the law of God. God hates sin. And our sin puts us at odds with God. And Romans 6 verse 23 is very, very clear when it says that the wages or the penalty of sin is death. You and I cannot be mediators because you and I are guilty. We are the ones to blame. But the man, Jesus Christ, God manifest in flesh, has become our mediator. He mediates for us like a defense attorney mediates for a client. He tells the judge, Your Honor, my client is innocent. And the reason that Jesus Christ can say that about us is because He drunk the cup. He took our blame. And now you and I can stand blameless before God. Colossians 1.22 tells us. Our defense attorney took our place. And you know that was God's plan all along. He knew humanity would mess up. He knew that we would fall into sin. He knew that humanity would need a mediator. So before the beginning of time, God instituted His plan. Jesus Christ, God manifest in flesh, the Bible tells us, was the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to die, to take your place, to take my place. Taking the cup included all the horrors of his death, the crown of thorns, the rejection by humanity, the abandonment by his friends, the whipping, the nailing, all of that was included in the cup. The turning away of his father while he became sin for you and me. But there is something that we might not necessarily grasp that is part of the cup, and it's this. It includes him being silent while standing before Pilate, after being accused by the chief priests and the elders, Pilate turns to Jesus and he asks him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? 
But the Bible tells us in Matthew 27 that he answered him not one word. So that the governor marveled greatly. He could have spoken up. He could have said, this is not my fault. I am not to be blamed. I am innocent. I am here because of the sins of humanity. I am innocent. He could have defended himself. But the Bible tells us that he answered not a word. Jesus refused to blame others, even when pushed to the limits by his accusers. Under that same situation and under that same kind of pressure, how quick would we be to say, this is not my fault. I am being unjustly accused here. This is that person's fault. It's that person's fault. You know, we are quick to blame others. It's my mother's fault. She's to blame. It's my dad's fault. He's to blame. It's my uncle's fault. It's my grandparents' fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's the church's fault. It's the pastor's fault. It's the devil's fault. Everybody else is to be blamed. So seldom do we take personal responsibility. We instead point the finger at others, passing the buck, and rendering ourselves helpless to change anything, but not Jesus Christ, Jesus, the only one who knew no sin, the only truly blameless man that has ever walked the earth, said, I will take all the blame. All sin. And to be nailed to a tree so that you and I can live forevermore blameless. Think about it this morning. He is the one, the only one, who could have been perfectly correct and right as he started to name names. You know, John, he's the one that needs to be blamed. He's filled with lust. Sally, she can be blamed. She's a murderer. She hasn't killed anybody, but with her words, she has cut people down to size. And it's Sally's fault that I'm here standing in front of you, Pilate. You know, Billy, he's going to be blamed. He's conniving and cheating. He's narcissistic. Annie, she ran around on her husband. Joey, he's filled with pride. He's arrogant. He's narcissistic. He has no respect for others. George, he's racist. That's why I'm here, Pilate. This is not my fault. I'm here because of them. The list goes on. But get this into your mind this morning. Jesus... Who knows your heart and knows your life kept his mouth shut. At the perfect opportunity where he could have said, this is not my fault. And he would have been right. He looked at my heart and said, I'm not going to blame Jason. I'm going to take that. He said, I'm not going to blame Sister Janie. I'm going to take that. I'm not going to blame the young people sitting in that church. I'm going to take that. I'm not going to blame the parents that are struggling. I'm going to take that. I'm not going to blame them for words that were spoken. I'm going to take that. Every moment when he could have stopped it, Jesus Christ chose instead. As a lamb before the shears was done, didn't say a word. 
And you know the lesson from this is that knowing that Jesus Christ took my blame and your blame, it should stop us from blaming one another when we get into arguments and when we get into fights and when things are going wrong in the home and when things are going wrong at work and it's so tempting to blame somebody else. Knowing that Jesus took our hearts and outside of Jesus Christ, nobody knows your heart better than you. There are things in there you hope nobody ever finds out. But Jesus knows. Jesus saw. And he still took the blame. You know, it should move us to stop blaming others. Yes, they did wrong. Yes, what happened should not have happened. But those of us who are recipients of grace should extend grace to others. Not because they deserve it. Not because they earned it but simply for no other reason than because the one who did not have to extend grace chose to extend grace to you and to me. You know, grasping the magnitude of somebody else becoming our substitute is so difficult for us. You know, and and when they happen, these kind of stories make an impact on our lives when we find out about them. They make impressions. And, and even though they are not common, they do occur from time to time. At the moment, we are living in an interesting time, to say the least. As we deal with this coronavirus, and our brothers and our sisters in Victoria are locked down yet again. You know, and since the end of 2019 through 2020, there has been many, many, many people die. From COVID-19, there's been economic upheaval and it has changed our society in ways that we don't even know yet. We haven't even figured out how it's going to be changed. But you know, even during this time, there has been glimmers of hope for humanity. There was a story of a woman from Belgium. She died of COVID-19. She refused to have a ventilator. They said, if we give you this, it will save your life. She said, no, I don't want it. She told the doctors, I don't want to use it. I want you to save it for a younger patient. I've already had a good life. She was 98 years old. And she said, you know what? I'm I'm done. I've had a good life. Let's leave it for someone else who might need it more than me. There was a lady in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. She went to her lawyer and she changed her will. She said, if I get COVID-19, I don't want a ventilator. I don't want it. She said, I am willing to give up my ventilator to someone who still has a life to live. She acknowledged that she had underlying medical issues and if she caught the virus, she was going to need a ventilator if she was going to live. But she said, and I quote, I don't want to take some college student's ventilator. I don't want to take some young mother with four children's ventilator. I don't want to take a 70-year-old person's ventilator who maybe has a disabled child that they're still caring for. I've lived my life. I'm 65 years old. I've raised a family. I've spoken to them about this decision. And they respect my choice. 
Decisions like that are difficult for us to grasp. Why? Because they are in contrast to our human nature. As we all stand this morning, we are so concerned with me, myself, and I. Your human nature is self-serving. It is self-seeking. It is self-absorbed. We are mostly out to get what we want. To take care of the self. To look after number one. And number one is me. But Jesus came to deliver us from self. He came to deliver us from all of our hang-ups. All of our shortcomings. And all of our sin. Jesus took your blame. Jesus took my blame. The only one that had the right to blame me for what I had done. Chose to take it upon himself. And now you and I can experience that nature for ourselves. And we can extend grace to others who need it. Would you just bow your heads with me this morning? Let's just talk to the Lord in prayer. I feel His presence here today. Oh, Jesus, I worship You. I wonder if we could just spend just a couple of minutes just thanking God for what He did for us. Oh, Lord, I worship You. I praise You. I magnify You, Lord. Oh, God, the enormity of what You did for me, oh, Jesus. I don't think I could ever really understand it, Lord God. But Lord, I want you to know that I'm grateful. I want you to know that I'm thankful, Lord Jesus. I didn't deserve it, Jesus. Oh, if anyone deserved it, it was not me. But Lord, you still took my place and refused to lay the blame at my feet, Lord God. I thank you for it, Jesus. Lord, we lift our hands. In gratitude to you, Lord God, we worship you. We praise you. We magnify you, Lord. There's no one like you, Jesus. Jesus, I worship you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to not blame others, Lord God. Help us to take responsibility, Lord God. Help us to refuse to get back into the backwards and the forwards that happen, Lord God, where one person says something and we say something and then someone else says something and goes backwards and forwards. Forgive us, Jesus. You didn't do that with us. You could have. You could have argued the point with us. You would have won, God, because you were right. But you didn't. You kept your mouth shut, Lord. Took what should have been mine. I'm grateful for it, Lord. I'm grateful for it, Lord. 
Hallelujah. Lord, as we get ready to worship you, praise you, Lord, as we move into the next part of our service, Lord. God, have your way, Lord, in our hearts, oh Jesus. Help us to worship you with abandon, Lord God. Help us to worship you because we're forgiven, Lord God, that we can live in grace and freedom, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, praise you, Lord.